It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Thanks, Dave, and welcome back once again to the podcast, everyone. We appreciate you downloading us and uh, giving us a listen once again as we talk about week five of the 2015 Division Three football season. This is the Around the Nation podcast for October 5th of 2015. And uh, gosh, to, to start it off, Keith, uh, right at the top, just uh, the dominoes falling, the pieces uh, falling into place or out of place in Division Three here in week five. Uh, losses by John Carroll and Ithaca and Bethel to teams that are unranked. Losses by W&J and Platteville, the home teams ranked ahead of them. What does it all mean? Well, we'll talk about how it shakes out here at the top of the show, then bring you our risers, followers, game balls, and more. But let's start with that Thomas Moore W&J game. Keith, um, you know, Thomas Moore has been kind of champing at the bit to get W&J back on its home field. Uh, they've had to travel to uh, to Washington, PA, two years in a row, play under the lights uh, on the road uh, several hours from home, things that uh, they didn't necessarily want to do, and it uh, turned around a little bit for them when that game got back in Crestview Hills, Kentucky, with a 38-20 win for Thomas Moore. Yeah, I thought it was a really solid win for them, too. Of course, the one that that both teams circle when the, the pack schedule comes out. Uh, Thomas Moore, you mentioned the history of it. Both of those losses the past two years, bad losses, too, not like close games or came down to the last second in the fourth quarter. Uh, the scores were like 45, 21, and 52. I wrote them in triple take, but I don't have them off the top of my head. But they, they, Thomas Moore wasn't close. Uh, came blowing out the gates early this season to the point where, you know, Thomas Moore's scores were catching eyes nationally. But you really, we wanted to withhold judgment until we saw them play against W&J. And I thought everything we saw on Saturday from them was, uh, was really encouraging. Even right down to you know to making a quarterback switch and having the quarter other quarterback come in and play well, um, they played well defensively. They they had a um, you know we thought that game could be a you know shootout in the 40s. Uh, the weather didn't seem great from, from what I could tell, but it wasn't wasn't quite the terrible weather that that probably coastal teams had. Yeah, it was fine to play in, and and I thought they were physically or physical uh, offensively when they needed to, to to dominate, put the game away late in the third quarter, early in the fourth quarter. And then again, defensively, I thought they were top-notch. And I think we're looking at a team now that we can take seriously as a top-15 team, a team that may creep up maybe even into the top-10 if teams ahead of, of Thomas Moore lose uh, late in the season. I think we're looking at a team that, that uh, you know, potentially a playoff team and, and one you may have to worry about. Uh, big win and maybe a little bit of a big wind as well. We had a couple of people on site. Adam Turr and Kevin Neas uh, filed, a, filed a vertical D3 report after the game ah, with the video. And guys, um, first of all, D3 reports. Uh, secondly, uh, vertical. But uh, I did pull out some of uh, what they did have to say after the game. And uh, here's what uh, here's uh, Adam and Kevin's take. Pete Kaufman made some great plays at quarterback for the Presidents, but threw four interceptions, four different Saints defensive backs came up with the pick. Uh, they were very opportunistic, going for tip balls, uh, really swinging the momentum uh, with their plays on defense. And those momentum swings, the offense really started to capitalize in the second half. Uh, and it's a huge win, big celebration going on behind us. Uh, this, you know, it's so early in the season to talk about conference champions and playoff bursts, but as we've seen the last seven, eight years, this is the game in the PAC. This is really the game in the PAC, as you said. It's too bad it's not played on the last weekend of the season, something like that. It's kind of anticlimactic. Uh, and both teams uh, have a shot at the playoffs, obviously, but they need to stay on, you know, on their game because 
tiebreaker, which Washington Jefferson has used to their advantage the last two years. They've gone to the playoffs with the automatic berth because of their head-to-head win over the Saints. Um, huge win for Thomas Moore today. Great team performances, offense, defense, special teams. Kyle Fuller had some punts that flipped the field that really uh, put pressure on the president's offense, and that led to some turnovers. Then great field position for Thomas Moore. Uh, they come away with the win in the second half. Great crowd, great atmosphere. I see what you mean now by a little bit of a big win. I think for Thomas Moore, this is a, a, a just a huge I don't know if monkey off the back is quite the right way to put it, but but it, it's it's such a, a big win for them. And now, you know, the challenge for them is to stay focused because they have, um, you know, the rest of the season to play out. And for W&J, same thing. You know, you, it's very easy to get demoralized after you lose that one game that you think is going to turn uh, turn the tide of your season one way or the other. But for, for W&J, um, you know, a chance to, to finish strong. I thought they, they, they played pretty well to the point where um, – we could, we may not have seen the last of them. I thought they, they wasn't like they were blown off the field by any means. I, I thought they, they hung in there pretty well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it, it isn't too early to talk about uh, having the uh, having the advantage in the conference race, as uh, Adam was referring to. Maybe a little bit early to start projecting out which nine and one teams, or maybe even an eight and two team, uh, might get into the playoffs. But WJ certainly hasn't uh, completely eliminated itself from that contention as of yet. Uh, moving on to another big game on Saturday. How about John Carroll losing to Ohio Northern? Um, you know, John Carroll obviously has been kind of headed for this, at least seemingly so, since the season started. And yeah, that finally happened. But we also have the Polar Bears. Uh, these guys are three and one, uh, but they've trailed by double digits in each of those four games, and they've come back to tie it in one instance and win in the other three. Is it a, a matter of? Uh, learning how to win. I know that's one of those cliches that people and coaches like to throw out there. Is this what the definition would be? I, I don't know. I, the, you know, the big thing that stands out to me is that it goes back to a theme that we talked about um, before the season, and it comes up from time to time, it, where you have a team that makes this this quick jump from pretty good to really good, and which John Carroll certainly did. And certainly they were a well-rounded team last season, pushed Mount Union to the brink twice. So, so we can't say it was all Mark Myers, but I think – Going back to now just having kind of a regular D3 talent at quarterback. And, you know, I shouldn't even say D3 because when you go, when you think about there were times when, when Dan Whalen took Case Western from, um, you know, a 7 and 3, 5 and 5 type of team to 10 and 0 and in the playoffs. And then as soon as he graduates, they go back to just being the Case Western that, that we know, or Case Western Reserve, I should say, make a point to say that, right? Yes, thank um, you. Appreciate that. Um, and, you know, for John Carroll, Jake Schaefer's not not a terrible quarterback. He was twenty two of forty eight, two hundred sixteen yards, no interceptions, two touchdowns against Ohio Northern, and um, but it, but it certainly just seems like ever since this season began for John Carroll, they don't they're not quite the team they were last season. Now maybe there are other factors. Maybe they they lost other key seniors, but certainly from from afar, it, it looks like they you know without that real outstanding quarterback, they're just a pretty good team and not an outstanding playoff caliber team. As a reminder of how we got here in this opinion of John Carroll, uh, they won at St. Vincent in the opening week 26-3, came back and won by seven at Heidelberg, won by three on the road at Baldwin-Wallace last week, and then uh, coming in against Ohio Northern, who is now three and one they lost on a Saturday by the score of 30-27. to 
let's see. Elsewhere, we talked about, or I mentioned Bethel in the open. Um, losing at Concordia Moorhead seems to have surprised some people, but I don't really know why. I feel this is more of a transition year for Bethel. Um, they've tri- uh, switched to Trey Anderson, the freshman quarterback. Defense is still pretty young. And the secondary, which I thought looked pretty good against Wartburg and is one of the uh, best units on the field, just doesn't have the same impact against a Cobber team, which only threw 16 times on Saturday. Pat, I certainly think like Concordia Moorhead is one of those teams that doesn't quite get the, the recognition nationally that it deserves because it's always um, sort of one rung below the St. Thomas, St. John's, and Bethel in the uh in the in the Mayak, but I think teams in Minnesota and teams in that conference know that Concordia Moorhead is right there on, on the same level. So you know, for for anyone to say that that this loss is surprising, I think you kinda hit it on the head that Bethel uh going through a little bit of a change in, in the Mayak we you know we've determined is five, maybe six teams deep this season. And so there are gonna be some results that don't necessarily line up with, with what your preconceived notions are. Yeah, and just again, run down where Concordia Moorhead's been for the last three years. It's eight and two, and six and two in the MIAC every single time. Each of the last three years, uh, they lost uh, in the last couple of plays to St. John's back two weeks ago. Um, you know they have a blowout win over Eau Claire. Uh, they handled St. Olaf handily, beat Bethel. Then they go down to Carleton. They host Augsburg. They're at Hamlin, and the big game on uh, October thirty first versus St. Thomas. And if they win that game. They have to finish out at Gustavus, which has not been a, an easy team to beat the past couple of years either. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, right aside from the Empire 8, the the, the Mayak is, is the conference where you're most likely to have either two playoff contenders or teams beat each other up so badly that there's only one team left standing at the end. Well, we're going to talk about another one of those conferences here now, uh, about the WIAC and, and Platteville specifically, though. Before getting caught up in the, the fact that they had 15,000-plus fans at uh, Perkins and that the uh, the fact that this was a good early-season showdown to have on the schedule, uh, I just want to remember and throw out there that the Pioneers made the Warhawks look pretty mortal on offense on Saturday. Uh, Chris Nelson, just 9 for 20 passing. Warhawks, 150 yards on the ground on 43 attempts. Jordan Ratliff, just 72 yards on 33 carries. Um, I will say this, though, in Chris Nelson's defense. In the time I was watching this game, I saw a lot of drops by Warhawks receivers, and I know you were watching earlier than that. Yeah, and, and your observations line up with mine to some degree in the sense that the thing that surprised me the most out of the, the you know, what, what, Whitewater looks kind of like the Whitewater we know, um, but still – rounding into form in some ways, uh, defensively great up front. They, they got a lot of pressure uh, with that defensive front four. But I thought the Platteville defense was, was stood out, and that's not necessarily something I expected. And I think, you know, for the years that, that Platteville's been a good team, we, we kind of focus on the offense. We talk about their quarterbacks and, and um, you know, the, their, their offensive system. Um, but we haven't spent really any time that I could, that I could think of talking about um, how strong they are on defense, and this is the first game where, where you know, it, it, they were they, first of all they were never out of it, um, and then there was a point in the second half where where Tom Kelly is rolling out. Um, he got he kind of threw the ball away just to get rid of it, maybe threw it out of bounds or was trying to throw it over the head of a receiver, and he couldn't exactly see what happened on the screen, but he may have gotten pushed or he fell down after he got rid of it, um, and uh, and then he was kind of writhing on the turf, and so. Uh, at that point, you think, wow, Platteville's really in trouble. And that, that wasn't the case at all. They got the ball right back. They stayed in the game. 
Uh, they were able to support their uh, their sophomore backup quarterback to keep it close. The problem with 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 that is uh, Whitewater was played just as well on defense, and so they, they couldn't really get anything going. Yeah, uh, Jack Eddy came in. Uh, he was seven of fifteen passing. I I'll be honest with you, um, you know, for coming in and and facing uh, and facing Whitewater, I thought he looked pretty decent. Uh, some might even say looked pretty good. Um, you know, he uh, it took obviously took a, a little bit of time to get started. He threw an interception early in his stint, but then, you know, he drove them. He had them uh, moving down the field a little bit, uh, and they ended up, uh, you know, needing two scores in the final minute uh, plus. In order to win, uh, they decided to, on fourth down to take the short field goal, miss the short field goal, and then that was it. Um, you know, they uh, the Whitewater covered the uh, or you know ran out the clock and all that. But um, you know, I I just feel like uh, you know the the, the uh, Whitewater offense is something we're going to have to continue to keep an eye on, and it doesn't get a whole lot easier for them this week because uh, they're going to be going up to Oshkosh and Oshkosh all they did was put up nearly 900 yards of total offense on Saturday yeah so so next week they're going to have to get play just as well defensively as they played this week but you, you have to get you have to give them credit because if one team is built to win these games ugly to win win them running the ball and and you know even if they have if they end up keeping the score down uh, it's going to be hard to score on, on Whitewater's defense and they they went through a lot of change uh, it's not like this. They got the exact same team back. Um, they they lost some of their standouts on defense, of course. Uh, Brady Gravold is one who comes to mind. Uh, I believe they lost eleven seniors off last last year's team. So uh, it's not the exact same team, but um, they held Platteville, which doesn't doesn't attempt to run the ball all that much. But uh, but uh, they held them to, to negative two yards rushing on twenty six attempts on Saturday. That was a big difference. Neither team over three hundred yards of total offense in this game. So it turned out to be a, a pretty big defensive battle. Keith, two questions for you before we move on. Uh, one, if you're a Whitewater fan, are you worried right now? And two, where do you rank Platteville in the NAIA? <laughs> that, well, that second one's an interesting one. I don't think Whitewater fans are worried necessarily, but this this one next week, um, you know, you get through that one, and I think they probably they probably feel pretty good about themselves. That's the one that, you know, you'd rather play Platteville and Oshkosh at the end of the string I think because uh it seems like Whitewater's still working working some things out um offensively and uh you know maybe it's just going to be that kind of year for them that they don't have a Jake Kumro that they can bail they can go to to bail them out when uh when times get rough they don't have a um you know Lavelle Coppage who they can hand off to 38 times in a game although you know Jordan Ratliff is, is certainly um getting you know got 30 33 carries on Saturday um I think may you know it's maybe just going to be that kind of year for them, and and I wouldn't worry if I was was Whitewater at all, even if they stumble. They're in such a, a tough conference, and it's in such a good position. I think uh, you know it, it would take them losing twice, I think, to, to to be knocked out of the playoff picture. Oh, and to answer the second question, where does Platteville rank in the NAI? I guess somewhere right right below Morningside, right? Since they, since they played uh, virtually the the, the same. Uh, the same distance between the two teams. It was 33-30 last week, 17-7 this week with Platteville. As you mentioned, had a chance to put some points on the board late in the game and, and, and didn't do it because of the circumstances of the game, but not because they weren't capable. For you NAIA coaches poll non-watchers, and I'm sure there are a lot of non-watchers out there uh, listening to this particular podcast, but Morningside was ranked number four in the uh, poll coming into this weekend. They beat Northwestern, the one in Iowa, 
And that's as much as I care to know about the NAIA for the purposes of this particular podcast. Let's move on to game. I looked that up too. Did you? This week. I just wanted to see where they felt. Uh, Let's move on to game balls. I'm going to give my game ball to Whitworth quarterback Ian Colsty. If you remember the record set by the Pirates on offense last year, this was not the guy. Colsty was the guy who got hurt to give that guy his chance. Uh, Colsty's back this year, though, and he went 36 for 51 on Saturday for 362 yards to give Whitworth a 37-14 win versus George Fox. By the way, the Heisman Trophy was in attendance at that game on Saturday. Uh, There's an automaker that's a sponsor of the award, and one of their Spokane dealerships had the trophy for the weekend, and well... Whitworth is the highest level of football in Spokane, Washington, and so that is where the Heisman Trophy was on Saturday. That's true. Uh, Gonzaga University is the big game in town in Spokane, but uh, of course they're known for basketball and don't play football at all. For you know, random Spokane facts, right? Yeah. Um, for for my game ball. Wait, wait a minute. Whoa, go. whoa, 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 whoa! Are you the Spokane spokesperson? Oh wow! Yeah, you yeah. Stop me to get that in. That I know. Good. It was like five seconds late. My bad. Go on. It's it's fine. We have uh, fans of our podcast are clearly also fans of, of Corny Joe. So, uh, and they go both ways. Not it's not just you, obviously. Um, for game ball, I'm gonna give mine to the Mary Harden Baylor defense. There were bigger games this week, absolutely, but the crew was just silly on Saturday. Now, Mary Harden Baylor has earned itself the the Mountain Union treatment by being so dominant that we barely spend any podcast time talking about them. On Saturday against Bellhaven, which earlier in the year ran more plays than Whitewater in a 62-6 loss, the crew was outgained 381-336 in a 59-13 win. That, now, that's made all the more – it's all the more amazing by the fact that the Blazers had negative 87 rushing yards because of Mary Harden-Baylor's 15 sacks. UMHB got four and a half sacks from Haston Adams, three from Tedrick Smith, and three other players had multiple sacks. That's five players with more than one sack on the day. Byron Mullins returned an interception for a touchdown. Matt Cody took a blocked extra point back, 98 yards for two. And the defense combined for six turnovers overall. Pretty good day defensively and what I'd say is deserving of a game ball. All right, team on the rise. For me, I'm going to go with uh, Utica, actually. And kind of surprised to be saying this at this point in the season. But the Pioneers are 3-2 and two with two of those so-called good losses and a good win, which is, you know, generally that's the resume of a team that might get some votes. Um, it's, it's long, we're refreshing resumes a lot in this podcast already, but uh, we're going to run down the uh, the Pioneers here. Uh, let's see, lost to Ohio Northern. We might have mentioned them already. They're 3-1 and one with a win at John Carroll. So that win looks, uh, or that loss looks pretty good. Uh, overtime loss at Cortland State, and now a uh, home overtime win versus Ithaca. Obviously, the uh, Empire 8 has a lot of grinding left to do before it spits out a winner, but through five weeks, Utica looks all right. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So I sketched out my poll before we started recording, and something rare happened. There was almost no movement in the top 15 because 15 is where I had John Carroll, and Platteville was 10th on my ballot and lost by 10 to the number one overall team. So then basically everything below John Carroll was in flux. So a lot of teams are going to move up just by virtue of who lost. But for my riser this week, there are actually two teams worth singling out and who bumped up one and two spots in the low movement part of my ballot. That's Thomas Moore and Harden Simmons. In both cases, it's because we as voters like to see how you play against other good teams. For the Saints, it was a good back and forth with W and J, but there was no doubt in the end. And for Harden Simmons, there was no doubt from the start in handing Trinity, Texas, its first loss, 31-7. Well, yeah, there really was no doubt. And that game, not as close as it seemed, Trinity scored with uh, in the final minute to, to get its only points on the board. 
uh, looking in the other direction, it's a tough week to pick a uh, to pick a winning team to take a fall. Uh, I don't think Rowan actually uh, will necessarily fall in the uh, in the grand scheme of things, but they might get passed on some ballots. Um, and that's not just because of uh, based on uh, one game uh, in the rain, on the road, on grass. Seriously, it looked like 1997 out there with all the mud as uh, Rowan beat Christopher Newport 14 to nine. But no, that's not why I think they should slide a little. Um, I think Rowan is just kind of uh, surviving on a couple of big plays here and there, and eventually someone is going to expose that. To me, Rowan isn't the second-best team in the NJAC right now. Salisbury is, but uh, Rowan is the second-best team or the number two in the top 25 among teams in the NJAC. Well, I, that's kind of a, a bold take, and, and certainly without the second-half comeback from Albright, Salisbury would be ranked. And Salisbury also didn't get to play a game this weekend, a game that they certainly would have won. Uh, and with Albright at, at 4-0, that loss doesn't look as bad as it did back in week one. Uh, as for my fallers, obviously there are a bunch. Six ranked teams lost on Saturday. Number 11, John Carroll. Number 13, WNJ. Number 14, Wisconsin Platteville. Number 19, Ithaca. Number 20, Bethel. And number 23, Guilford. None of them were really bad losses to bad teams. WNJ and Platteville, as we've mentioned lost to higher-ranked teams, and they might not fall in the poll at all. The team that will tumble most is, is clearly John Carroll, and we've been nervous, nervously tiptoeing around their wank, ranking for weeks. The team that gives off the vibe going forward, even though it will move up in the poll this week, is Cortland State. They've won twice in overtime and once more on the last player regulation, and a 12-point win against Framingham State was, was a five-point margin until a fumble return with two seconds left. As long as they're winning, We'll praise the Red Dragons' resilience, but we also won't be shocked if some week comes along and they can't dial up the magic, especially the way almost every Empire 8 team seems to be a threat to win on any given week. Boy, I didn't realize you had Framingham State in your rundown. We got a, uh, a note on, uh, on the blog a couple weeks ago. Hey, guys, by the way, it's Framingham. And I'm like, we've been doing this podcast for eight years, and Framingham has been relevant for a few of those. How has nobody said anything? Um, but, you know, I, I, I actually have not confirmed that with actual Massachusettsians. Well, uh, let me let me. And you're a, you did that one. You were a Massachusettsian once. Right, and so I never remember um, anyone ever saying Framingham when I lived up there. But as you, you know, Boston accents are not the easiest to understand. So uh, I always thought it was Framingham. I would say Framingham, too. You'd say Worcester. You'd say Billerica. That's another one. Ooh, that's a, that's yep. a good, um, that's a good um, you know, Massachusetts one. Uh, I'm trying to think if there are any, any, ones, any other ones uh, that come. Gloucester. You wouldn't say Gloucester, right? No. Um, so there are a few of them. And, and, and uh, you always said it that way. And so I, I always just assumed you had a reason that someone had told you to pr pronounce it that way. Or, or you know, you, you, there's a Fram, Framingham, Minnesota, maybe. I, I, I never <laughs> no, understood man. it. but <laughs> No, man. I, I did not know better. So uh, I guess that's on me. Um, <clears throat> I've, been, I've been frammed. <sighs> Miss misframing the pronunciation. Well, I'm no one to criticize pronunciation, as we know, uh, as longtime listeners of the podcast know. But um, but I I, th I feel like if we would if we went back over the years, you would be saying it differently. And we sometimes do that with with Lycoming or Lycoming. Yeah. Right. We sometimes go back and forth on the pronunciation. It happens. But we we get a lot of them right. You know, there's there's Gustavus. It's not Gustavus. And, and there's Hamlin and Willamette. There's a whole bunch of them that, that if you weren't familiar with them, you certainly could, could mispronounce. Buena Vista, Muhlen, Muhlenberg, Allegheny, 
No one should mispronounce we, Allegheny unless you're an ESPN anchor. Um, we were talking about uh, you were talking about crazy endings, right? Cortland State. Um, there's definitely been a couple of crazy uh, late, uh, endings lately for Cortland, uh, and there are lots of crazy uh, endings to choose from this week. I was looking at the Hope Albion game where Hope gives up a touchdown to Albion with Albion. <laughs> See, there's another one. Albion is how uh-huh. that's pronounced. It's a good thing Alma's not in this game. Right, so Albion scores with 4.23 left, and uh, Hope trails 21-14. In the rain, with an offense not really built to rally. But against all odds, Hope quarterback Rob Kish gets three of his just six completions on the day, and he uh, leads the Dutchman down the field to score a touchdown with Chris Lee taking a nine-yard run into the end zone, finishing a 14-play drive. Now, Kish is not a guy who looks comfortable in the pocket, even on the rare occasions when things are clicking on this drive, but he has a prayer answered. He hits a 30-yard sideline route on third and 19, that sort of thing. So Hope scores the touchdown with 16.4 seconds left and decides to go for two and go for the win at home. Kish drops back, gets pressured, floats one up that sails harmlessly out the back of the end zone, and Albion uh, covers the onside kick and wins 21-20. But Keith, what a strange way for that one to end. With a kid who's gone 6-for-27 passing on the day, throwing for a two-point conversion attempt in the rain. I'm not sure I even mentioned uh, it, it was raining the entire game. Uh you know, one of those things where uh, after the touchdown, Hope keeps the offense out there. Albion calls timeout. Hope comes back to the sidelines. And I'm sure they would bring the kicking unit out. But no, the offense comes back out. Well, you, you know, you remember Wesley's uh, winning two-point conversion last week. There was uh, there were a couple teams who tried to tried to pull that off this week, and it didn't work out. Uh, you mentioned there being a lot of crazy endings to choose from. There were, there were some other candidates. Rippon uh, intercepted a two-point conversion pass in overtime. Rowan had this weird um, scrum, I guess, rugby scrum, where they pushed, they pushed their two-point conversion in. Uh, they were trailing 9-6 in the fourth quarter uh, at Christopher Newport and, uh, and scored there. Uh, Westfield State missed a point after in overtime. You know, and Empire 8 teams did Empire 8 things. Uh, Utica and Cortland both won in overtime. I actually counted seven one-point wins from this weekend. Denison Tufts, Minnesota Morris, Trine, uh, Wisconsin River Falls, Ripon, and Albion, plus Lakeland and Dubuque, each one by two, and seven games as of the time we're recording this uh, have gone in overtime. I watched Utica beat Ithaca, and that's my crazy ending. And and the the craziness in that game was was Utica surging to a 24 nothing lead, and Ithaca storming back, and then Ithaca gets the ball first in overtime and just has you know nothing go right. Uh, they nearly threw an interception in the end zone on third down. Um, lucky that wasn't picked off. And, uh, and so, you know, they were happy just to get out of there with a field goal there with their first possession overtime. So they take the lead. And this is what I thought was interesting. And, and you know, we could talk a little bit about the strategy uh, of going for it in, uh, in overtime after your D defense holds the other side to a field goal. But I think that you absolutely take a shot. That's what Utica did. Uh, wheel route out of the backfield. Um, per- Perfect coverage, except for the, the minor detail of turning around and finding the ball and knocking it down. And so, uh, a five foot seven player was able to outleap a, a six foot two player to go get the ball and uh, and win it for Utica. Again, you know, when the other team kicks a field goal with their first possession overtime, you almost owe it to your offense to take one shot into the end zone. If you don't get it, no harm done. You got second and ten, and you don't really have to get a first down it's nice if you get a first down because you can you can win but worst case scenario um you know you get a couple even if you throw incomplete on second second and ten you get you know get a few yards on third down maybe you get five yards and you can line up for a 37 yard field goal a 
attempt. Yeah, uh, there were a couple of games like that on on Saturday. Uh, I I know I uh, read somewhere else and then wrote it in one of the roundups uh, about another team that went for the went for the win at home, and uh, and didn't come didn't come away with it either. Um, I know you know first of all I I hate cliches uh, you know to beat the band, but um, how much of the coaching cliche and uh, you know go for the tie at home, go for the win on the road? How much do you, of that do you buy into? Not much at all. I, I actually that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. What makes sense to me is um, the team that that's got the momentum. I feel like go go you go for two if if you if you just stormed back from way down, um, you know, like the way Wesley did last week. You just drove all the way down the field. Your offense is clicking. You have a good two point play. I think that's the first thing. Do you have a two point play that you like that you worked on a practice a bunch of time and it works? If you don't have one. And you trust your kicker, you know, maybe it's okay to kick it. I think it's a feel thing, and there's no rule necessarily. You, you know, it's like how you feel about your offense, how you feel about that two point play that you have, or maybe, you know, maybe you have six or, or five of them that you work on, um, but one that would work well against the defense you're going against. I, I think it's a lot more of that. And so that was kind of what was interesting about Utica and Ithaca, because Ithaca was the team that stormed back and. You know, Utica was kind of the team on its heels the whole time, and it just took that one play, take that one shot, first thing in overtime to um, to, to to get that momentum back. Had that been uh, a game where there was a two point situation on the line, I think Utica, even though it was a team that was at home, it was the team who that was on its heels and, and reeling. And, uh, and and maybe you don't want to play overtime with the team that's that's uh, you know all of a sudden struggling. You want to just either win it with a two point conversion or, or get out of there. Some other time we'll talk about how uh, having a, a strong-legged field goal kicker works into that scenario, but we've kind of gone over time on that question already. And then my parting thought on that is if Utica and Ithaca ever uh, create a, a trophy game, is that the the uh, Utaka jug or the Ithaca jug? And, and, and you guys can discuss that uh, elsewhere. Um, most surprising result for Saturday. I'm going with uh, Augustana beating Elmers 9-3, one of the last games of the night. Not surprising necessarily in terms of who won that game because those teams were pretty evenly matched. So the next thing I did was uh, just check to make sure that uh, Sam Frasco actually played quarterback for Augustana, and he did. It's just a completely different ex- uh, score than expected after Augustana scored 42, 49, and then 52 points the first three weeks. Uh, and I know if you're Augustana, you take a win any way you can get it, especially uh, with CCIW play starting up. But I, this one was the one that was most surprising to me. Uh, one person who saw the game uh, told me it was a matter of Elmer's just being a better team defensively than Mount St. Joseph, Albion, and Loris. Uh, that's a whole heck of a lot better defensively. But then when I went back and I, I looked at the Loris-Elmhurst game where there were a couple, obviously, common opponents there, I thought, yeah, I guess mathematically it could work. It just seemed it just seemed completely odd and out of the blue considering how uh, Augustana got to this point in the season. Well, I would say, too, that you expected to see some of those 9-3 type games wherever the the storm was moving yeah. up the east coast so new england or, or new jersey those, those games you figure out ah, there's going to be some nine threes around there but uh but but augustan and elmhurst are in uh illinois um for my most surprising result this isn't exactly news this is about a season season and a half now this has been going on that that uh that puget sound is is now halfway decent and willamette is no longer knocking on the door of the top 25 but it's still eye-opening to see the loggers beat the bearcats Puget Sound, they, they were so, so bad for so long. Um, and, and now they're sort of making a move. They, uh, they eked out a win against uh, the Bearcats despite rushing for just 16 yards 
on 24 attempts and going three of 20 on third and fourth down. Yeah, I've got some rushing numbers and some uh, conversions like that too for my stat of the week. Uh, I'm going to talk about the St. Thomas defense, which put up some impressive numbers on Saturday. Uh, pick from a selection of these. Uh, five net yards rushing allowed, 47 yards of total offense, uh, just two first downs allowed. Um, 30 players had at least one tackle, and one other had a pass breakup as their only defensive stat. But uh, this is the one that's the most surprising statistic to me. The Tommies only had five tackles for loss, and that really jumped out at me until I realized that the only only ran 52 offensive plays and, and 42 or 42 14 of those were incomplete passes so lots of incomplete passes and zero and one yard gains in that game uh, and St. Olaf has scored 10 points in its three MIAC games so far as the uh, Tommies won that one on Saturday 54 to nothing yeah well since I already mentioned the 15 sack game by uh, Mary Harden Baylor I, I thought the the stat of the week that jumped out to me was just how how many lopsided first halves there were like the kind of first halves where people get up and you know go for for a hot dog and, and don't come back for the second half uh rose holman's was maybe the most outlandish first half they took a 39-0 first quarter lead they stretched it to 60 to 6 over anderson at the half uh some guy in central texas must have been having the greatest football day of his life as mary harden baylor was up 50 to 0 over bellhaven at the half at the same time in Division One, TCU was leading Texas 50-0 to zero at the half. Uh, both <laughs> TCU and Mary Harden Baylor right along that I-35 uh, corridor in, in, in Central Texas. Uh, elsewhere, Jay Losey's return to Linfield, the team he led to the 2004 Stag Bowl, uh, the national championship. That game was no fun by halftime as Lewis and Clark trailed Linfield 38-0. And one more for you. St. Vincent scored 28 in the first quarter, 27 in the second to take a 55-7 lead into the locker room against Teal. And I'm sure there are others uh, that, that I missed. On a day when it seemed like scores across the nation should have been more down than usual because of the hurricane remnants, it seems like players on certain teams might have been down. You know, how do you give that halftime speech? Okay, it's 55-7, uh, it's but I need you guys to forget about the score and just concentrate on giving the best you got here in the second half. I mean, it's, it's, it's just got to be tough to go back out for the third quarter when you're down 60-6 or 55-7. 60 to six. Yeah, that's a 55, seven. Those are, those are some pretty ugly first halves. Um, and some of those were not all that great in the second half. Um, let's take a look at triple take. Uh, we'll, I'll look at the good predictions. Um, surprisingly close games. Uh, Keith's pick of, uh, Ithaca Utica certainly qualifies. Well done, sir. Um, I didn't go as far as to pick a specific game, but I'll just point to the Rowan Christopher Newport game as an example of the concept when it was, you know, rain and, and rain keeping the score down and keeping it close. Yeah, yeah, I know. Fairly obvious, right? But I felt like it had to be said, uh, especially on Thursday when I wrote it and the rain was still uh, a, another day or so out. Uh, you got, you were a little more specific and got that game under defensive battle. That was the best place to put it. Um, let's see. Uh, Ryan and I each picked uh, top 25 teams who were upset. Uh, I picked John Carroll and uh, Ryan picked Bethel. Uh, you and Ryan each picked teams who would win a challenging conference opener. Um, and as for the game of the week, yeah, I mean, Thomas Moore, WJ had a lot riding on it. It maybe wasn't as much a game down the stretch, but it was certainly a big game. Yeah, well, for the not-so-good predictions from Triple Take, if you guys uh, read it every Friday morning, we lay out our uh, our seven-point primer for the weekend. If we're trying to boil 
hundred or so games down each weekend into uh, games to watch. Uh, Ryan's pick of Harden Simmons and Trinity wasn't exactly surprisingly close, and that game didn't work out for me either, as it was uh, one of the few games that went to the favorite on a day when uh, when six ranked teams lost. Uh, teams that'll win a shootout. We ought to just retire this question altogether as uh, two of us picked teams that didn't even win and Pat picked the right winner, but not a shootout. 69 maybe to a, 14. 69 to 14. Yeah. Uh, maybe defensive battle ought to be tossed out too, come to think of it. Adrian certainly didn't win a challenging conference opener. They, they lost. And, uh, and Pat, you had predicted that they would. Yeah. Yeah, that did not work out. Maybe we'll be a little bit better at lightning round. Yeah, well, let's let's uh, let's start it off. We just, do we need lightning round timer? That'd be cool too. That or just zzz in the background, perhaps. Right. Yeah, uh, we should, yeah, that's that's what we need. We need a backing track that has uh, a bolt of lightning every eight seconds 15, or something like 15, that. Fifteen. I was gonna say fifteen seconds. All right. <laughs> no, eight. Eight. We're going with eight. All right. Uh, backup quarterbacks. Uh, there were a lot of them who played on Saturday. Uh, Platteville lost Tom Kelly. We talked about Jack Eddy, the sophomore, coming in late for Platteville and trying to rally the Pioneers. Oh, your first uh, chance to play. You only have to play against the uh, number one team in the country. Mitch Farrick had to play for Guilford when Matt Polowski was injured. That's a big reason why the uh, number 23 Quakers lost. Thomas Moore replaced Jensen Gephardt with Brendan Kuntz, and he was uh, pretty good on Saturday. Helped uh, the Saints finish off W&J. And Buffalo State got a big game out of Aaron Ertle playing in place of Kyle Hoppy. They beat St. John Fisher 30-7. to I remember Kyle Hoppy, former Baltimore Orioles farmhand, right? Never get to say farmhand on this podcast. Let's see. Montclair State scored more on Saturday than had the rest of the season combined. They beat William Patterson 64-7, entering the week with just 45 points on the season. It might be a little surprising. We're talking about Montclair getting its first win here in Week 5. But then again, you know, the Red Hawks started with DelVal, Salisbury, Rowan, and a bye. And uh, for most of the past decade, there's been no guaranteed wins in that foursome. Yeah, and of course, remember that, that Salisbury and TCNJ got rained out as did LaGrange and Averett. By the way, that's pretty far apart, uh, New Jersey and, uh, and, and Virginia. Uh, Wesley and Southern Virginia, they were postponed until Monday afternoon, too late for inclusion in this podcast, let alone the top 25. You know, it's a good week when I have to pull out the D3 record book, and I did that a couple of times on Saturday. One was for the uh, Mary Harden-Baylor sacks, by the way, most uh, highest number of sacks in a Division Three football game by one team. And the last one was just to remind myself what the D3 record for total offense is in a game, and Oshkosh was 85 yards short. They had uh, 829 yards in their 69-14 non-shootout win at Stout, and the record is 914 by Harden-Simmons uh, in that game back in 2012 versus Sol Ross State. Uh, while this wasn't a record in the national sense, how about Oberlin quarterback Lucas Pagioli? Yeah, that works. I think that works. <laughs> well, if we're going to mispronounce or pronounce correctly, we might as well have some fun with it. Um, he threw for 506 yards for the Yeoman on Saturday. Let me reiterate, that's Oberlin. Yeah. Uh, you know, the team, long, I guess long, it's been a long time since they had a long, long losing streak, but certainly not one of your, uh, your, your stronger teams. Uh, Robbie Ryan, Reinheimer. Caught 228 of those 506 yards in a 48-9 win against Allegheny. Oberlin beating Allegheny 48-9. I know you see it coming this year, but just if you go back four years even and and try to try to explain that to somebody, it'll be really difficult to uh, get them to buy into that. 
let's see. Speaking of how the mighty have fallen, uh, a frequent entrant of late on that list. This week, uh, Williams is on there because the East were shut out by Trinity again, this time 24-0. Second year in a row that the Bantams have blanked Williams, and it's Trinity's second consecutive shutout to open the season. Well, if you had a, a even worse start to open the season, like maybe getting outscored 271-9, to I don't despair. You can still win a game. Finlandia got their first victory. They beat Maranatha Baptist 30-14. to So uh, that that constitutes our weekly uh, <laughs> our Finlandia update. mention of Finlandia <laughs> on the podcast. They are having the most, uh, getting the most exposure for their, their first season ever just by virtue of the lopsidedness of that schedule. Yeah, of who they're playing, right? You, 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 you certainly get mentioned when you uh, play your first game ever, and then you know you get mentioned if you play a, a, a top twenty-five team or two or the number one team in the country, and then you come back and get your first win. Two hundred and forty-six defeats, two hundred and forty-seven by uh, sixteen points. All right, let's see. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Minnesota Morris scores 22 points in the fourth quarter, and then McMurray scores with 10 seconds left and goes for two to win. That's a going for two on the road, by the way. Uh, unlike Wesley, they can't pull it off, and the Cougars hang on 44-43. Three wins now for the Cougars uh, after that 0-10 season that uh, they uh, they suffered through last year. Yeah, and then uh, you know some games uh, didn't come down to the last second like that, but they looked like they would, or, or they were pretty close at halftime. Olivet uh, did all of its damage in the in this after the half against Adrian. It was they were down seven nothing at the half, they ended up winning that game uh, thirty four seven. Uh, and Mount Union uh, also had a pretty pretty sweet uh, third quarter. They they scored thirty four in the third quarter against you know you know who do they even play at, at this point? You, you you just you just look at Mount Union and they're 627 seems like every week but they they did play uh capital last week uh and and capital actually scored that's Which a, is, that's the first points against mount union this year that's true and they were getting ready to threaten uh it was i don't know two or three years ago they went first six games without giving up uh or they'd given up a touchdown late i think to franklin and then they went like six games without giving up a touchdown you said Olivet did all of its damage, and all I could think of was Olivet did all of its damage. It sounds yeah, like it sounds oh, exactly the same. All of its damage. Well, if I was <laughs> if I was writing a rap line, I remember that those two things, Brian. <laughs> Uh, we'll look forward to that on a future podcast. And, uh, coming up next week, let's see, games coming up in week six of uh, Division Three football for 2015. Man, if uh, struggling offensively wasn't uh, enough uh, uh, with uh, with Platteville for Whitewater, now the top-ranked Warhawks are heading to UW Oshkosh. Keith and uh, you and I have talked about this game already, but uh, there have been some uh, good games between those two teams too. Yeah, and, and I think if you share the view that, that Whitewater is, is not going to be dominant offensively, this season, then uh, and then you look at the the game Oshkosh just played offensively. Certainly, be watching that game next week to see if uh, maybe an upset's in the making. Been ten years now since uh, Mountain Union last lost a regular season game. It was to Ohio Northern. Ohio Northern coming in on a bit of a high as uh, they go to Alliance this weekend. Yeah, and and I kid, of course, with Mountain Union because it feels like their game is the same every week because they just crush teams but this is one we'll be watching because uh, Ohio Northern off to a pretty good start will be coming off, off a little bit of a high after beating John Carroll and you're right still the last team to beat the Purple Raiders in the regular season back in 2005. I'll be watching that game I'll be uh, watching it uh, three hours earlier I'll be in the Pacific time zone McMinnville Oregon where third ranked Linfield hosts Pacific when I was picking out uh, picking through the Linfield schedule maybe about a month ago to see 
what things uh, might look like. Uh, this was the game I picked out. Little did I know that I probably should have picked out the Whitworth game that was coming up um, on the uh, 24th, but uh, it will still be, uh, I'll still be interested to see up close and in person what Linfield looks like against one of the better teams in the Northwest Conference. Well, not to mention, it's just a great place to see a game, maybe not quite on the level of St. John's or, you know, taking in one of the great rivalry games. But uh, but Linfield is one of those places where if you're a D3 fan from you know any random school and you're listening, if you're ever out in, in Oregon, that's one of the places that you that you have to see uh, if you get a chance to see a game at the Cat Dome, as uh, as it's known, you know, you see mountains in the background, you, you see, you know, it's just a kind of a. Uh, a, a tremendous spot to, to see a game. And Pat, last time we were out there, I believe somewhere in town, we got our names on a on a on a board on a, on a marquee. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I have like like a picture of us just pointing at the. It said, "Welcome, <laughs> Pat and Keith." So there was a time when uh, when when us coming to town was a big deal. <laughs> Eight years ago, that was our first trip to McMinnville. Uh, either one of us, and this will be my second. Um... So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, much shorter trip for Hardin-Simmons. They uh, take the trip across town to McMurray. Uh, at one point, I clocked this with an odometer. I forget how many miles it is, but it is very few. Um, McMurray, of course, back in the American Southwest Conference and, and back in Division Three after uh, three years of uh, getting lost in Division Two. Let's see. Uh, Cortland State goes to Buff State. That should be an interesting game considering where those teams have come from the past couple of weeks. And, and DePaul gets its first test of the season with uh, Wittenberg coming to town on Saturday. Yeah, that could be a pretty big one for, uh, for both sides. Obviously, Wittenberg having lost to, uh, to Wabash. Uh, you know, they can't afford to lose anymore if they want to stay in the, in the playoff picture. And DePaul, uh, 4-0, but, but, you know, you want to see them do it against a good team. Also, I don't know what to make of McMurray. So Harden-Simmons now, I feel like, pretty legit top 25 team. McMurray, though, has played uh, the past, their past three games haven't even been D3 opponents. They lost 7-6 to Southwestern. So we don't quite know what to make of them. They play Oklahoma Panhandle next. So this Harden-Simmons game is going to be the game where we figure out what kind of team uh, McMurray, which you know transitioned from D2 back to D3 this offseason, uh, just kind of trying to figure out what kind of talent level they have. Once upon a time, uh, Hardin-Simmons-McMurray was a destination game for us as well. Um, also coming up on Saturday, uh, I had that strong take earlier about uh, Salisbury being the, uh, the second-best team in the end, Jack. I hadn't even looked at the schedule uh, to realize that Salisbury hosts Rowan. So uh, we'll have a chance uh, on Saturday for Salisbury to put their money where my mouth is or however that might work out. And then um, a game that uh, is, uh, has been, was, a, was an interesting showdown a few years ago. I wasn't really expecting this to be on the radar this year, but uh, W&L going to Hampton City. W&L coming in undefeated after beating Guilford on Saturday. Yeah, and as much as we've talked, and it's been pretty much every week on the podcast and the results have lived up to it, as much as we've talked about the Empire 8, being topsy-turvy every week, any team could be any team. That's pretty much business as usual on the ODAC. And uh, with with L beating Guilford on Saturday, I think Guilford was probably the team that that uh, we we predicted in in kickoff, if I remember correctly, to uh, to win the conference. So now that team has a loss. WNL, uh, you know, Hampton Sydney didn't look good in Week One against Wabash, but uh, but they've played well since then. So that'd be a big one to watch, but. In, in ODAC country, every game is a good game to watch because uh, all eight teams are competitive. All eight teams are competitive. There won't be eight teams in the ODAC anymore. Keith, Keith, Guru Bowl might go away. Catholic's going to go to the new Mac. 
That was a, a blip on the front page on Tuesday before the flood of uh, around the region columns came in. Um, Catholic uh, Catholic is going to join the that's the New England Women's and Men's Athletic Conference uh, starting up football in 2017. Catholic is the uh, eighth member in that league, and uh, yeah, so. Catholic's going to be out of the ODAC where they've been uh, the entire automatic bid era. And I, I know that, uh, you know, obviously the Catholic Randolph Macon rivalry went back several years before that as well. That's actually, I know it's, it's, um, uh, it, it's chicken scratch for you guys, but for Catholic, that's the longest uh, consecutive rivalry we have now. Interesting. I, to that, I didn't know, but, I, but it's almost always been a good game because the teams seem to rise and fall together when Catholic was really good in, in the nineties. Uh, Randolph-Macon was pretty good, and then even when both teams went back a little bit, they always seem to play great games against each other. It's been a Friday night game uh, for the past few years, which makes it makes it fun as well. A uh, couple of interesting, I guess, thoughts about that move. I'll make them quick. One, makes sense, I guess, for Catholic, even though geographically the D.C. doesn't work because there's a big Catholic school presence in New Jersey, uh, in New York, all the way up to, to New England, uh, Boston, Connecticut. That, that you see, you just you don't necessarily have Catholic schools in other parts of the country, but uh, in, especially in New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts, you ask you know Catholic schools may have the same enrollment as as public high schools, and so uh, it's certainly a good place for them to be recruiting. Maybe an idea part of that reason too. You want to get in that conference because you think you can win it and get in the playoffs. Uh, maybe they can share bus rides with with Gallaudet <laughs> on the way up to. Uh, <laughs> since they play, they're yeah. from DC and they play all their games in New England as well. Uh, you know, maybe they got something going on with. Uh, I mean, seriously, that, that, that's like a stone's throw uh, from uh, from each other. So maybe maybe they share buses. <laughs> and uh, and for the ODAC, I think part of the reason they they were eager to finally take on Shenandoah, um, which was eager to get in from the USA South a few years ago, is that it would always it would always protect them uh, in case one team wanted to leave. The uh, yeah, Catholic University of America has always been a very northeast-facing uh, institution because of all the all the Catholics that live in that northeast corridor between uh, D.C. and Boston. Um, I was actually looking at it. Yeah, um, if if they could, if the New Mac and the ECFC would line up their schedules, so Gallaudet was playing at Husson the same week Catholic was playing at Maine Maritime. Uh, just maybe they could like charter a larger plane and save some money. I don't know. That would be uh, that would be interesting, but uh, and also I, I heard uh, over the course of the past couple of days that Catholic actually tried to get in the Commonwealth Coast Conference for football. I expect a, an announcement of some sort from the CCC coming up very soon, uh, perhaps uh, shortly after you guys hear this podcast. Especially because the CCC did some big stuff with hockey, and you can read about that on d3hockey.com. You cannot read about that on d3football.com, however, because this was the Around the Nation podcast number 136 for the week of October 5th, 2015. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it and writing a review so the football fans will find it as well. Thanks for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com.